enjoy your music that's outstanding and very uh, appropriate to set our, our mood in the right direction. Let's pray. Father, as we come this hour, we have a great need, and the need is that the teaching ministry of the Spirit of God would preside this hour, this next moment, this next segment, and that uh, the Word of God would be preached without human resistance or obstacle. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, it wasn't too long ago I was asked to do some uh, teaching on discipleship. And, uh, you know, in our assembly, we, we began to think that through several years ago, and it was sort of fresh freshened this last year. And uh, at, at the discipleship intern training program, I, I was doing a, a segment on making disciples. And in our studies over the years, we came up with this cliche. It goes like this. We want to see souls saved so that souls are discipled, so that souls are sent out, so that more souls are saved, discipled, and sent out. We call that the life cycle of Christian service. And as I began to think about that and study John 4, I thought I should add something to the equation. And it should say, say something like this, soul saved, so that souls are discipled, that we might make true worshipers that are then sent out so that souls are saved, discipled, and truly worship. And you say, well, Steve, that's not a big change in it. Isn't that what a disciple is? Yes, I agree, it is. But it seems to me that the Father is really, really, really passionately seeking that kind of person. And he introduces that sort of language to this lady. And he says, listen, I, I want you to know that's what God has sent out the search party for. A true worshiper. And that's where we were. That's where we left off last hour. A true worshiper. And we stopped just before we got off the bus of our last of our last segment. And that was we looked at Isaiah 14 and we saw that the inauthentic, non-true worshiper has a great deal of uh, angst. It creates a great deal of angst in the heart of God. A, de- a great deal of, of, of uh, no thank you, no more, stop it already sort of responsiveness. And, and I think we should take heart to that because it's possible in 2,000 years later from the time of Christ that you and I could fall into this same problem that we're not true worshipers we're just worshipers but we think we're true because we're lying to ourselves no i think we need to be different i know we need to be different so let's go back to the text i'll begin reading in verse 21 woman believe me the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in jerusalem what you think so, or, or what you used to think, or what you think now, worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews, meaning, listen, it's really not about what you're thinking about Gerizim. The Jews were given the oracles of God, so they kind of have that part straight. But I'm changing it all. The hour is coming and now is. When, true, when the true worshipers will worship, not only is there a quality about you, not only is there something that is different about you, that you're authentic, uh, genuine, not disingenuine, but you will actually then go to the effort of worshiping God. You will express the proskuno of, uh, to your heavenly Father. Now, 
when you do the math, if you look at what we do, what we do in our, in our circles is we come and we break bread every Sunday. And I, don't get me wrong, that is indeed corporately the highlight of the week for me. And I enjoy that, and I'm going to enjoy that with you tomorrow morning. And what it really is, though, is that we are remembering. That's what it says, do this in remembrance of me. Those are great things to do. And what happens as we remember the Lord, we cannot help ourselves, which is a tremendous thing, to, a tremendous problem to have, but we cannot help ourselves but to express back to God, the Father, and to the Son, our great esteem of not only what He's done, do this in remembrance, that is His work, but also of who He is, that's in the phrase, remembrance of me, and as a result, we express to God at that moment, worship. Now, how many hours are in a week? Thank you, 168. And we spend one hour, which would be less than 1%, it would be about 0.5% of our week collectively gathering. <laughs> that was impressive, wasn't it? Must be, an, must be an engineer. Or he asked Google or Siri. How many hours? Where was I? Less, it's about... of the week that we spend corporately, first beginning with remembering and ending in worship. Now, I think that what we should be doing is that true worshipers will worship, meaning that it will be a natural outflow of your normal Christian existence on the other 99.5% hours of the week. In other words, I think worship really happens by you and God getting into this place called the closet where the door is shut and the world is outside and there's no distractions and you have that open Bible and as you're just going through the scriptures, you're saying the Spirit of God shows you something and your mouth begins to speak, your heart begins to sing and just you alone in that moment is worshiping God in a manner that will then come together as a collective body and we have a hundred percent participation because whether we're either publicly silent or publicly audible the point is that every heart is a true worshiper that happens in that closet called prayer how many how many hours did you spend in there this week it was a colleague my 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 co-worker jim mccarthy he was talking and and I was, I was listening to his ministry. I was up next, so I had to listen to his ministry. And so, uh, and, so uh, and he said, you know, sometimes I just, and he, I couldn't believe this. He says, sometimes I just get my Bible and I go off and, I, and uh, you know, I, I find a, a lone spot. And, you know, I don't tell anybody this, but I actually, I actually started bringing bread and a little grape juice with me. And I go, that's weird. He would go out and he said, I just remember the Lord. And I just have a private moment where I'd remember and worship him. I've never done that. And what it, what, when I heard that, I realized, I don't think I'm a true worshiper. I'm only a, quote, true worshiper when I'm with you. Well, by definition, I'm not sure that means I'm a true worshiper. By definition, it means I'm sort of part-time and what I'd like to see is, uh, and, and pray about is that as when we make disciples, we foster into this, we ingrain, embed, um, uh, etch into this, this heart of ours, this idea that we are to be 
the worshipers that God is looking for, the true ones, the ones that have this, this motivation, this, this sort of orientation to have, the, to have the, the, the honor of God at its highest, no matter the time, no matter the place, no matter the company. I'm not sure we're doing that, and that's a challenge to both you and I. Now, what do you, the reason why I preface all that I, or I said all that is to preface this. You must worship God in spirit and in truth. We'll worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now, the word spirit is pneuma, and it, it, it can be taken or translated with a small s, meaning the spirit of man, or it can be translated a large s, meaning the Holy Spirit, and the context dictates which one. Now, in this particular context, it's hard for me to say. So I say they must both have an element of truth. Well, Steve, you sound so political. Yeah, middle of the road. You can't make up your mind. Well, because I can't. I think it's both. In other words, I think there's an element of worship that will involve that which is private, that which is personal, that which is the small s, where you and your God have this sort of communion that, that connects you, uh, what did you say, at the hip, right? It connects you heart to heart. That's what he means, the small s. Now, how does that happen? That happens because the large s, the Spirit of God, fills you controls you. You, on your side, you walk in the Spirit. Now, I'm going to try to explain a few of those concepts. Do you know, do you know that, that phrase in um, uh, Ephesians 5.18, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is recklessness or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit? The word filled is key, and he uses the idea of drunkenness as the contrasting element. Now, um, whether you have been drunk before or you've seen people that have been intoxicated, one thing is very, very um, common, notable. There is no control. Did you notice that? So uh, I'm working in the emergency department many years ago, and uh, the bars close around 2 a.m., uh, not because I was there, but because I take care of all of the barroom fight victims an hour later. And so one guy came in, and he had a big gash on his forehead like this, and he was quite intoxicated. And so he's laying on the cart. And I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, fix your cut now. I'm going to numb you up. And I hear, <laughs> okay, okay. So I thought, I wonder if he even feels this. So I didn't numb it up yet. I just kind of used the needle and poked the skin. And he went, <laughs> so I said, I don't think we need that. So I started fixing. Didn't feel a thing. Now, normally... When you're not intoxicated, you, you would feel that, but not at all. But like I said, the one thing that's clear is you don't have any control. So while we're working, I'm, I'm just working away. It's, good. it's a large cut. It takes me about an hour to fix. I'm doing my thing, you know. I'm doing my thing, and uh, my face is right next to his face, and so I, I, I smelled all the heavy alcohol. And about halfway through, I hear water running like a pipe broke, and he couldn't hold his bladder and... He emptied it on the floor next to my shoes, running on the floor. Anyway, and, and I'm thinking, you know, if this man was not intoxicated, he would never do that, right? Most of us wouldn't have to do that. And if you did, we'd have a chat, right? But when your faculties are in play, in, in appropriate boundaries, you don't 
You would never dream of laying down on a hospital cart and just peeing all over the floor. You would never dream that, right? That's like, oh, well, sorry. But you know, when you're filled with, with an, an intoxicant, you lose all control. Now, by contrast, he's saying when you're filled with the Spirit, you have every bit of control, but it's the control of God over your life. So this guy named Dwight Pentecost, what a name, Pentecost. You know, I, I don't believe in that uh, uh, being predetermined to be saved, but with a name like Pentecost, it makes you wander, right? And so, so, so anyway, uh, Dwight Pentecost, he was a teacher at Dallas Theological, wrote several great books. And one of them is on the Holy Spirit. The other one is, if you're wondering, is uh, uh, Things to Come, which is probably the great, one of the most complete books on the, on the end times. And so he, he writes one on the Holy Spirit, and he has a chapter on what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says this very important thing, which I, I really found um, insightful, helpful. He says the word filled comes from the world of sailing. If Ephesus was a seaport. Makes sense. And so he says, you know what, and many of you are sailors here. I'm, I'm not. I'm a wannabe guy, but you, I'm the guy on the boat that you say, sit over there, and I go sit, you know. And so, uh, so he's saying, you know, when the Mediterranean sailors there, they, they would try to get the mast and the, sa- and, the, and the sail in the right angle so that the wind would fully catch the whole sail so then the vo- vessel would begin to move. And when the wind would catch the full uh, sail, all square inches of that piece of fabric, it would poof out in magnificent, almost uh, at-attention array. And then, then and only then, would the vessel be able to move across the face of the ocean. Makes a lot of sense to me. And he says that word fill is the Spirit of God controlling every aspect, every part of every square inch or centimeter of your soul, to borrow from the analogy. So filling of the Spirit is control. Like the alcohol would control that man towards recklessness, so the alcohol controls the individual towards the fruit of the Spirit. And it just so happens that when you do walk in the Spirit in that measure, you will do things which the law could not ever legislate, which is why he says these fruits of the Spirit, and Galatians chapter 5 says, against such there is no law. The law can't do enough, make enough rules to have you do everything the Spirit would do in terms of his fruit that, that, that you would possibly do. So the, the Spirit of God enveloping, controlling, meshing, interweaving His life with yours, your life with Him, is how you actually worship in your own spirit, with your own spontaneity, with your own creativity, with your own sense of affection and adoration that's poured out. That's what we do privately. And then we do it together. See, the reason why He says all this is because he's telling us the secret of being a true worshiper. Now, you have to combine that with something very strategic. It's called truth, right? You see, the lady was worshiping God, at least her people group was worshiping God in non-truth, and yet they thought they were totally right. You know, the old Samaritan cult believed only the Torah, they thought they're totally right. So what you have to do is you have to have sort of a, what's the word that I'm looking for? A cleansing, a sort of washing with the truth that is the first initial cleansing, which as we all know is usually the dirtiest thing, and where you come to Christ as your Savior. 
You see, that's where it all starts. It's not about, it's not about great preaching. It's not about great singing. It's not about great uh, poems or, or, or whatever. It's about truth that the Spirit of God brings and meshes to the soul. It, you're, you're joined. You're interwoven so you can't pull it apart. And the truth is the other thread. And the thread of truth is God's word, of course. It says once for all completed truth. And it's, it's times like this where we discuss it. It's times like last night where we talk about the narrative of God's glory. It's times like we talk about the theme of redemption or reconciliation or the, the idea of justification or just old-fashioned verse-by-verse exposition. It's exposition. It's truth, truth, truth. Now, we're supposed to be good at that in the assemblies, aren't we? Some we pride ourselves on. We, we, we know the truth. Well, I, I agree. We, we do know the truth, but do we? Does the truth know us? It's a big difference. If you know me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Does the truth know us? That is, are we obedient to the Word of God? That's really the, the test of knowing truth. You, you can't just be hearers of the word we have to be doers of the word that's the that's the evidence that we we really do have faith you show me your faith by by you know by your state i'll show you my faith by my works we 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 show it by our obedience to it but i think the problem is is that when we know it we use that to say we obey it but it's not the same you know, it's my, it's my feeling that if we're only really smart Christians, we're really only weapons in the wrong hands. But if we are doers, now we're tools in the master's hands. It's a big difference. So we have to have the truth. Now, there's another arm, arm to that. Jesus Christ said this. He says, I am the truth. What does he mean by that? I embody everything and all things that you hear in the scriptures, you hear in this book, in this document, the things that the Spirit of God reveals. I am all of those things in one package, not in words, not in ink, not in parchment, but in living color. I am that truth. Now, the only way you can really appreciate that is maybe to appreciate a little story of the Savior. You see, the Savior came in Mark 10, 45, and he said, I did not come to uh, be served, but to serve. Well, that's a nice thing. I can take that on the test. What did Jesus say in Mark 10, 45? To, uh, not to be served, but to serve. I could, I could pass that test. But that's to- not the same as being in a room one night when we're all full of supper. It was roast lamb, a little bitter, but it was good. And, you know, we, we just were full. You ever get full after, you know, you eat? What happens when you get full after you eat? Yeah, you, you, you do the, the, the O sign. Sound like Darth Vader, right? And if you're like me or John or James, we put Oreos in your mouth. That's what we do. Yeah. I mean, it's open, right? And so so you have this sort of sleepiness and that that upper room and and you have this this guy who was kind of like already had it in his heart to turn the Lord Jesus over and you had the disciples there and they're all kind of sleepy chewing on their little straws and toothpicks going hey who's going to be the greatest huh huh 
I think it's going to be me. I walked on water. Any of you boys walk on water? I don't think so. Can you imagine that? And here the Lord Jesus, all his life, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. They wouldn't, they, even if that was on a test right then, they wouldn't even get the right answer. And so what do you do when you have that scenario and you love those guys? Like he says, he says, and I having loved his own, having loved them to the end, what do you do? Well, he does something unheard of. The greatest in the room, the, the one who knows that he came from the Father and going back, he knows his exact station and the economy of all of God's doings, gets up from the table without anybody noticing. And getting up from the table in those days means you actually had to get off the floor. So well, let me tell you, somebody should have noticed. And so he gets up and he goes over and he changes clothes. Somebody should have noticed. And he puts on the, the towel of a slave. A slave. Somebody should have noticed. But who notices a slave? And he goes over. And if it's true that Judas was on the, the side of honor because he received the sop, most likely, although it's conjecture, most likely he started with that man's feet. And he reaches down and he begins to bathe those feet. Now this is taking Mark 10, 45. I did not come to be served, but to serve and putting it in living color. Because let me tell you, now you're washing a betrayer's feet and every other selfish man's feet in the room. And how did he do it? Well, I would have did it with a wire brush. I'm sorry, you're bleeding. Let's do it again. You know, I would have done that. But the Savior, he has a way about him. He is embodying meekness and gentleness and kindness and grace and love all in one motion and it's living color truth. And he does it with such poise. He's such a gentleman. I think he does something I would have never done. He takes the towel from his body. Do you know what that means? It means two things. He thought of the comfort of those men by warming a towel to dry the feet of those men by the only microwave he had available, his body heat. But when he did that, he exposed the human body so that there was no dignity left to cover him. Now that's how we serve, right? Now that speaks loudly, doesn't it? That whole description and these guys kind of half asleep in their stuporous state, thinking about who's the greatest. And there's the greatest, and he's on the floor washing my feet. You see, that makes Mark 10.45 come to life. So when he says, those who worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth, he's not just talking about the data. He's talking about the demonstration. Isn't he? And for you and I, that's where it should begin. If you want to be a true worshiper, you let the Spirit of God fill you so that all of your human spirit is filled with all of the Spirit which belongs to God. He controls you. He owns you. He, he lives in you. He permeates His life through you and your limbs and eyes and ears and hands and will. And then, 
according to truth, all that is documented for you, all that has been communicated and now written in written form, you, you live it, you, you, you see that truth, and that truth becomes like the Savior's truth, three-dimensional. It's just like Him. If He stops to pick up a piece of trash, so would I. If he stops to help the widow, so would I. If he wants to give a large tip to somebody, so would I. It's Christ. It's so much Christ. And that makes a lot of sense because we were the image bearers of God's glory. And then we turned over our glorious image to Satan. He brings us back and he writes us. It's in that he is predestined that we should be conformed to the image of his son. You know what he means by that? We're going to be reestablished in the glory that was supposed to have been there. That's truth. So let's participate in it and let's behave like Christians and let's give attention as it said in Isaiah to the father, to the fatherless and to the widow and those who are down and out and those who need righteousness and care and justice and shepherding. Let's do that, all that. You see, that's what it means to worship the father in spirit and in truth. It's not just verbiage. It's vitality, isn't it? That's a true worshiper. But I want you to I want you to look at this last. So, so remember, I said there's four points I want you to remember. True worshiper, worshiper in the spirit, worship in truth, and then he seeks this person. He seeks this person. I want you to look at it here. Verse 23, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, that word seeking is uh, is the same word used in that parable in Luke 15. You remember those three trilogies, that, that three parables, the trilogy? The first one is about the shepherd that had the sheep that wandered off. And it says, and he, and he leaves the 99 and he goes and he searches for the one. And when he finds the one, he puts it on the shoulder and he carries it home. Boy, that's really tender, isn't it? I would have been, you stupid idiot, I can't believe it. I would have done that. But no, no, not not the Lord. Apparently, shepherds are are very keen on those opportunities to soothe that sheep in such a way so that they'll never wander off again, doing so with gentleness and tenderness. The second story, or the third story you know well, that's where the lost son, you know, and the prodigal son. But the second story is very interesting. The second story is about the lady who had the 10 coins and she lost one. So a 10% loss in her investment, 90% still intact. Probably not a bad deal. I'd leave it alone. But she, it says... She cleans the whole house and searches for the one coin. That's, that word searches is this word. How many of you ever lost your cell phone? I take it by the laughter in the room that maybe one of us have done that. Yes. Now I want to ask you something. When you lose your cell phone, do you kind of like, well, I don't really see it. Oh, we'll find it later. Is that how you do it? No, no, no. That's when you wish you had eight or nine kids so we can have a team look for your cell phone. And I'm not kidding. In our house, when dad loses his cell phone, mama goes, all right, everybody, front and center, we got to find dad's cell phone. And I mean, I got a team in the car, both of them. I got a team in the bathroom. I got a team in the basement. I got a team in over there. And my, and we're all looking, dad, did you, did you do the thing? Yeah, I did the thing. It's not thinging, you know. I don't know what's going on here. And so then we go this, find your cell phone on the, on the computer. And, and it's not, oh, we've got to find the cell phone. And I mean, in that hour, we are like going crazy. That's this word. That's how he searched. That's, that's his intensity. 
to search for true worshipers. That's what he's looking for. I didn't know that. I didn't know that God was actually that keen on finding somebody who was a true worshiper. I didn't understand that. And my goodness, that's my Lord. Why wouldn't I want him to find it easy? But I seem to be making it hard. I seem to be making it difficult. I seem to be making it so that you don't actually find what you're looking for when you're stopping at my address. And that is what was bothering me so much. A true worshiper is what he is seeking. He must have that. He cannot go on without that, if you will. And I think what I'm most amazed about is this this last sort of summary point. That kind of person is found in a person who has a messed up life. A messed up life. A wrecked life. And what he means by that is that, lady, out of all the things you're looking for, of all the men that you couldn't find it in, of all the children that could never bring satisfaction, never fill the emptiness of your soul, the one thing, the one thing that will actually give you what you're looking for, lady, and you're messed up and, and, and dead in life is being a true worshiper. Now that is satisfying your thirst. That's what you're looking for. You see, being a true worshiper is not just unto God, is it? It's for you. God is so generous, so benevolent, so others-oriented that he would organize his plan so that when you are that true worshiper of God, you become the one that is most satisfied, the fountain of water welling up within you, the Spirit of God giving you the satisfaction of having communion with the creator of the universe and creator of you out of dust. You, my friend, will be oh so satisfied. You'll never thirst again. That's what he means. You know, I think that's what we need as a people of God. I think that's what we need as a subculture of Christians today in which we, called the assemblies, we come together. Because can't you imagine the beauty that would be when people come and they see satisfied, content Christians? Not because we have programs, not because we're busy, not because we're great givers or anything like that, but because we have found that truly worshiping the living God brings the greatest contentment of all time. Now that is what we want to give the world. So we can have programs. We can have activities and we can have conferences and I'm all for that, believe me. But when the day is done, what we want to be is true worshipers. I thought it was all Godward. It's all he wanted, true worshipers. But what he was saying with this life was, it's really about you. It's what you need. That will keep you from searching man to man, family to family, house to house. And that's what you need. 
You sit in this room, some of your students, and you're looking at your education, and that's going to satisfy. Or your jobs or your careers, and that's going to satisfy. Or your children and their lives and families, and that's going to satisfy. I'm here to tell you that today God is saying the hour is, and the hour is coming and now is, in which true satisfaction will be in a true worshiper of the truly living God. May we be that people. Father, we thank you for this little segment that we could just meditate in John 4 and sort of come to some conclusions that I hope bring us home to the place at the throne room where our hearts are just welded with yours in childlike adoration and glorying in our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I give you some-